participation of anything other than God brings God's presence into reality. And the question is why the soul cannot be the oil, why does it have to be the physical mitzvahs? And because the soul, and by here we mean the psychological faculties of the soul, the intellect, the emotions, etc., they serve a function, and that means they carry some significance. The idea of being something that serves a function, um, it has a role to play, right? and we can say, well, if the world is better with or without it, and that comes from what's called God's outer will, right? Where things have a or thing, God sees things as a means to some ultimate end, and that conceals over the ultimate truth that the only thing of real significance is God Himself. Whereas mitzvahs, what is exactly significant about putting black leather boxes on my head? Anyone know what's significant about black leather boxes? You said nothing. That's right. There's nothing significant about black leather boxes. There's nothing about the blackness or the leather, right? And so. In that, in the physical mitzvah, um, or really in the mitzvah itself, that's the kind of the oil, the, the, the abnegation of anything other than God having significance that brings God's presence into reality. Now we have to move on to, there are actually mitzvahs that are not physical, such as Torah study. And the Zohar is quite clear that it's the physical mitzvahs, not mental mitzvahs, not verbal mitzvahs, the act of physical mitzvahs, tzvillin, Shabbos candles, sukkah, tzedakah, mikvah, Etc. And so, to understand this, we need to we need to understand the role that the animal soul plays in the performance of mitzvahs. Is it possible for the godly soul to do the mental and verbal mitzvahs without the animal soul? Now, what you have to do is you have to differentiate between that as a question about in principle versus in practice. In practice, as long as you're alive, you can't do anything without your animal soul. The animal soul is necessary to get anything to happen in the physical body. And since obviously you speak using your mouth and you think using your brain, clearly the animal soul has to be involved. But what if the godly soul were to not be embodied? Could the godly soul study Torah? Could the godly soul speak? And the answer to that is yes. Thought and speech are available to the godly soul, so the godly soul, without a body, can do mitzvahs, as long as those mitzvahs are mental or verbal mitzvahs. However, in order to give tzedakah, in order to immerse in a mikvah, in order to put on tzedakah, in order to light a Shabbos candle, you need to get the body to do something. Okay? There's no such thing as spiritually putting on tzedakah or spiritually going to the mikvah, as a mitzvah. Not everything has a spiritual dimension to it. Which means that the godly soul cannot do these mitzvahs without the use of the animal soul. So the animal soul is only an essential ingredient to the mitzvah when we talk about physical mitzvahs. And therefore the shechina, the divine presence, really does not rest upon the animal soul except in the performance of physical mitzvahs. So, can I get... Can, can there be a revelation of the divine presence without physical mitzvahs? Sure. You could do mental mitzvahs. You could do verbal mitzvahs. But that divine presence will never really rest on the physical human being, will never touch their animal soul. In order to bring the Shekhinah to the human being, to the animal soul, which is the analogy of the wick, you need to do a mitzvah that necessitates the animal soul's involvement. And the only mitzvahs that necessitate the animal soul's involvement are physical mitzvahs.
Does this make sense? Does anyone have any questions? What? what does it make sense about it? Speech. Speech. Souls can speak to each other without bodies. Okay, you currently cannot speak without your body because your soul is embodied. Before you were born and after a person dies, souls communicate with each other. Right. I only need a phone to call my wife when we're not close to each other. But we're in the same room, I don't need a phone. If you're embodied, you need to use your animal soul to get anything done. But in principle, you can think and speak Torah as a soul without a body. That's actually what souls will do in Gan Eden for the most part. <laughs> okay, yeah. Then why does the Shekinah have some two people who are studying Torah? That's One second. So the idea is like the Shekinah will rest on the person. Oh, but not... But not the person-person. Okay. In other words, we have to keep in mind, there's you as a human being, okay. and there's the godly soul. To get the Shekhinah to the godly soul, you can study Torah. You can do verbal and mental mitzvahs. But if you want to get the Shekhinah to touch you as a human being, okay. you need to do physical mitzvahs. Okay. Okay, now, I'm ready to move on to chapter 36. Okay. So chapter 36 starts off... and. It, I want to say this. I'm going to try and move relatively quickly through these things. Um, they're difficult. Um, I think I mentioned this last time, but it's going to get quite abstract. And so my goal is to try and oversimplify tremendously so the core ideas are come through. I'm expecting there to be confusion if you think about it. That's a good sign, by the way. In other words, to, to know what the core idea is and then be confused about the details and how it all works... That's a, that's a fine place to be. It's not like the way you want to say the rest of your life. But that's what we're going to, that's what we're aiming for, at least for the next few chapters. Okay. The altar starts off chapter 36 with um, a fact which is known, which is that the purpose of this world is a dwelling place for God in the lower world. This is a medrash. And the altar immediately addresses the problem of how we can think about it being a lower world. In other words, if it's a dwelling place for God, and for God, there is no such thing as the upper or lower world because God is present everywhere equally. Then how does it make sense that God dwells in a lower world? For God, there is no lower world. And his answer to this is that what we mean that there's a lower world or an upper world, we mean in terms of the degree of receptivity to godliness. Though it's an upper world is a world which is more receptive to a revelation of God and a lower world is a world which is Less receptive. What would be the lowest world? What would define it? It is a world that is actually heavily predisposed to reject godliness. Okay? The only thing that's conceptually lower than the lowest world would be a world where godly revelation is an inherent impossibility. Um, And God didn't make such a world because that would not work very well. (laughs) So what's right above that? a world which is heavily predisposed to negate a revelation of godliness. So you can go all the way from a world where godly revelation is just innate and natural on the most sublime level, and then all the way down to a world that is heavily, heavily biased to object and obstruct a revelation of God, and that is this world. Now, what does it mean that God should dwell in the lowest world? So the idea is, 
that God decided, and I'm going to use that language, God decided, so that's a choice on God's part, right? That when Klippa and Sitrach, we've discussed Klippa and Sitrach before, right? When Klippa and Sitrach are defeated and transformed into holiness, God will be revealed in the greatest possible way. Why is that? Why is it that, that subduing and transforming Klippa and Sitrach reveals God in the greatest possible way? That's a question I want someone to answer. Why is that? Why is that by defeating the klipa and transforming it into something holy, God is revealed in the greatest possible way? I said this. Because cover up God. No. Because he decided that's the way it's supposed to be. It's very explicit in the Tanya. Okay, you can look it up. Chapter 36. He decided that. So what does that mean? That means specifically in a world which is, which is predisposed to deny God, God can be Revealed in a way that it can't be revealed in any other world. Does make sense? Okay. Now I've understood the idea of a dwelling place in the lower world. Okay. Now, when is this? Um, when is this fully achieved? In other words, when is the world in a state? that it's a dwelling place. Actually, I want to actually take a step out and just talk about an idea because it's a little bit confusing. When we think about things and we think about goals, we often can refer to two different things and it's important to differentiate the two, okay? What is the goal of playing a board game? Like Monopoly or chess? Wrong. And I'll prove it to you. You don't seek out the person that's easiest to defeat when you want to play these board games, right? Right. So that's not the goal. What is the goal? To win. That's the same thing. You don't look for the person that's easiest to beat. Give yourself the greatest challenge. I wouldn't say that either because you don't look for the most difficult person, right? It's something about the enjoying the, the kind of gameplay, the... The, interact, the social interaction coupled with the, you know, intellectual part coupled with, like, something in that range, right? I don't have to get, it's just an example, right? Okay. Okay? Um, so a board game is working well when it's engaging on that intellectual, social, emotional level. Then the game is working properly. If the board game is not working properly, then it's not doing that, right? Let's go to a car. What is the goal of a car? To get... Simple needs to get you from place to place, right? If the car is not doing that, it needs to be fixed. Okay? So now, what is the goal of this world? What is the purpose of this world? To create a dwelling place for Hashem. Okay, so that means that if this world is a dwelling place for Hashem, then this world is working properly. If this world is not a dwelling place for Hashem, then this world is not. No. Right? Okay? Not like a board, oh, so there's another notion of a goal. It's like a goal, it's an achievement. You did it and then you move on. That's not the way to think about it. When God created the world, what did he intend the world to be? How was it meant to function? It's meant to be a dwelling place, meaning it's supposed to be a state where the world denies God to the greatest extent possible. The Jew overrides that and transforms that into something holy. And through that, God's presence is revealed in a way that's beyond anything else. If that's happening the world is functioning 
properly. If that's not happening, the world is broken. Good? So when is the world fully functional? When is the world achieving its purpose? In the Messianic era? And specifically after the resurrection of the dead. I'm not going to get into the difference right now. That means that the Messianic era, and the altar is very clear about this, is not a reward. The Messianic era is the world working as it was, as it's supposed to. The resurrection of the dead is the world working as it's supposed to. If we are not in the Messianic era, it's because the world is broken. Good? Now, there was a, you know, like sometimes you get a, a taste of something before just to see what it's like. The giving of the Torah was a taste of this. So, the world was working properly at the moment the Torah was given, but that was temporary. And the world will work as intended to permanently in the Messianic era, specifically after the resurrection of the dead. Okay? Which means that um, the existence of this world right, is only justified because it will be in the state of the Messianic era. Now, what's special about the Messianic era? On the one hand, God is fully in a way that's greater than even the highest spiritual realms. And on the other hand, what is the basis of that revelation? The world itself, right? The fact that the world is predisposed to go against God. So what you have here is the highest truth of God coexisting with the lowest possible reality. And ironically, the higher spiritual worlds, the inverse is true. You have a more sublime reality, but actually God is in some sense concealed there. Good? Chapter 36 is done. We're moving on to 37. So 37, the altar says like this. How do you bring about Mashiach? Now, I want to make sure that we're clear. Is Mashiach the goal of the world. It's not a goal, it's how it's supposed to be. Right, so it depends what you mean by it. If you mean how the world is supposed to be, the world fulfilling its function, the world functioning as it ought to function, as intended, then yes. But not, you know, it's the world is not a means to then achieve, achieve this thing called the bring coming of Mashiach. The world is meant to be in a state of Mashiach, okay? I have an analogy for this. Let's say you have a couple and the couple is having marriage problems, and they go to a marriage counselor, and they, in theory, this works. Whether it works in practice is more debatable. And through the, going to the marriage counselor, they deal with all of their problems. And then they thank the marriage counselor, and then they say, we're now getting divorced. Mm-hmm. The marriage counselor's like, but, but, but why? We solved your problems. Like, yes, yeah, so we achieved the goal, and we're done. Mm-hmm. Right? That's obviously silly, right? Because the idea is that a marriage is itself a state of being that takes involvement and work and effort, right? But there's a healthy marriage and there's a broken marriage. Healing a broken marriage doesn't mean now you've achieved something and you move on. It means like now you engage in that state. So Mashiach and the resurrection of the dead are still times when we, and Alter was very clear about this, we still have to work to serve God. We're just, everything is functioning as it should be. Okay, so how do we, how do we fix the world? How do we bring the world to the state that it's supposed to be in? So the idea is that there are, there are, the, the world is basically in, enlivened, broadly speaking, by something called klipas noga. We've spoken about klipas noga before. Klipas noga means the klipa that can be transformed. transformed. 
So if you can transform all the Klippas Noga, knows the Klippas Noga as a whole has been transformed into something holy, then the world is functioning as it should. So all we have to do is transform all, not just a little bit of Klippas Noga, but all the Klippas Noga. How do you do that? Okay. So I'm going to go a little bit out of order. Okay, and, the, and it, 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 the chapter 37 is actually quite a long chapter. There's a lot of details. I'm going to go a little bit out of order for the purposes of simplicity. Number one, how do you transform the Klippa Snoga of you as a person? You have to do all of the mitzvahs. How many of the mitzvahs? All. All of the mitzvahs. If there is a single positive mitzvah that you have not done, then there's some aspect of you as a person which has not been transformed. Okay? Number two. Can you transform the Klippas Noga in a person if that Klippas Noga is being held back? Okay? Think about it like this. If you want to um, make a change in your life, you have to be willing to let go of the way things have been up until now, right? So... When one violates the negative mitzvahs, what they're doing is they're injecting the irredeemable klipa into their being, and that is holding them back. So in order for, your, for the klipa snoga within the person to be able to be completely transformed, the person needs to be free of all the 365 negative commandments. So again, how do you transform the klipa snoga within yourself? So the totality of your being is transformed into something holy, is by doing all 248 positive mitzvahs. But what makes it possible for you to have a soul, a human soul, that is able to be transformed like that is that you are not, your soul has not been poisoned or contaminated by the 365 sins. Good? So now what have you done? You've transformed the Klippus Noga within yourself. What about the Klippus Noga of the rest of the world? Well, the rest of the world is divided according to the Jews, which means that there's different parts of the world which relate to different Jewish souls. And when you do all of the mitzvahs, it connects to all of the parts of the world that are connected to your soul, which means all of the things in the world that enable you to do mitzvahs, they themselves are elevated and transformed. So if all the Jewish people don't do any mitzvah, don't do any sins, Okay? And do all the mitzvahs, what will happen to the Klippas Noga as a whole in all of reality? It'll be transformed into something godly, and that brings about the Messianic era. Simple enough? Okay. Now, I will preempt, someone always asks the question, that means everybody has to be completely observed and do all the mitzvahs. Um, it is important to understand that when we're dealing with these spiritual things, how the calculus works, in other words, how how this works over the scope of history and over the scope of individual life is, is a, a kind of thing that either you need to be God or someone who has some kind of prophecy or Ruch HaKodesh to really understand. In other words, there is a process by which mitzvahs accumulate and sins are removed and eventually, you know, as things kind of coalesce in God from the, in the spiritual perspective, that transformation has taken place. It does not necessarily mean that you have to achieve a moment in time where all the Jews are doing all the mitzvahs and not sinning. 
it means that as all the Jews kind of are, and we spoke of this before, Jews are being somehow like one organism, that that kind of spiritual being as it transcends the generations and transcends moments in time has somehow achieved the state where it's every aspect of the world has been touched. So this idea that even one more mitzvah can actually bring Mashiach doesn't contradict what we've been learning here. Um, and in that sense, by the way, this is not, in that sense, it's not even limited to physical mitzvahs because any mitzvah you're doing does in fact make use of the klipa of your animal soul, right? After all, you, you do at the end of the day you need to use your animal soul to speak words of Torah and to think thoughts, right? And so... It, in some sense, this process of bringing Mashiach is through any mitzvah, but the strongest effect is going to be through physical mitzvahs because not only do the physical mitzvahs bring the divine presence into the actually in a way that touches the world like we're in chapter 35, but when we do physical mitzvahs, we're engaging the, the klipas noga in the most, um, the most concrete way um, and it's having the far, farthest reach. So just, I mean, I'll give you just an example. Um, there's a country called China. You've heard of China? Okay. Um, if China wasn't part of the world economy, would Jews be able to do as many mitzvahs as they currently do? Think about it. Think about how the economy works. Think about how things like um, distribution change and production, manufacturing, commerce, right? Now, then think about what would the ramifications be if you just cut China out? So that means China is a participant of a lot of mitzvahs. So when you, and now, again, how is that, which part of China you're elevating? I know what you know, to be a prophet or willful good or something to know that, okay? But that means ultimately all of the Klippa Snoga's elevate. Now, here's the important thing. What about the irredeemable Klippa? One can ask about the irredeemable Klippa. There's a rule. The irredeemable Klippa needs to leech off of the Klippa Snoga. The way this works is that the Klippa Snoga derives its life from holiness, and the irredeemable Klippa um, leeches off the Klippa Snoga. Well, what happens if all of the Klippa Snoga is transformed into something holy? Then it can't leech off. And what happens if you deprive something of its sustenance? It dies. It dies. So if all of the Jews, right, don't do any sin so that there's, so that the Klippas Noga in their lives can be elevated, and they're doing all the mitzvahs so that all the mitzvahs so that the Klippas Noga in their lives are elevated, and because of the Klippas Noga in the world facilitates that's elevated, and now the Klippas Noga doesn't allow the, um, the irredeemable Klippa to live off of it, then what have you done? You've subjugated, transformed Klippa and brought about the ultimate revelation of God. And as long as that's the state of affairs the world is serving the divinely intention for purpose for the existence of the world. Okay? Which means, if we think about it, what is the greatest mitzvah of all from this perspective? Tzedakah. Because there is no mitzvah that touches the animal soul more deeply and more powerfully than actually giving away your hard-earned money to help somebody else. Okay? Now, we do have a conflicting idea that Torah study is the greatest mitzvah, not tzedakah. And this is because we have to differentiate between what has the greatest effect on the soul's connection to God versus what has the greatest effect in helping the world achieve its purpose. In terms of the world achieving its purpose, what is the greatest effect? The more Klippas Noga is involved. So tzedakah would be all physical mitzvahs, 
are, are better. Tzedakah, the ultimate mitzvah. But in terms of the soul's connection to God and really bringing a person closer to God, Torah is better. Why? Well, number one, um, remember when we spoke about how a Baini cannot transform their human self? Right? The, 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 uh, the, the animal soul really can't be transformed into something godly. Only with the tzaddik. But that's only true about how the Baini feels. What about what the Bainini understands? What about what makes sense to the Bainini? If a Bainini studies Torah and really understands the Torah and the Torah makes sense to them, then their intellect is a holy intellect. In other words, what the tzaddik is able to affect on the emotional level, anybody can affect on the intellectual level through in-depth Torah study. That's number one. Because the intellect actually can be truly transformed. A person, even though their animal soul on the emotional level is not able to be transformed, their intellect can be transformed that they understand the world and think about the world in a godly way through through Torah study. So it touches the person in a much deeper transformative way. And there's the other thing, which is that Torah actually is a truer revelation of God's unity than mitzvahs which is an idea I passed over when it was first mentioned in chapter 23, but now I'm going to address it. There is, in some very subtle sense, a mitzvah really is not a true revelation of God. Because a mitzvah still acknowledges that there's a difference between the one who wills the mitzvah, the commander of the mitzvah, and the one who fulfills the mitzvah. Right? The whole idea of a mitzvah is that there's how many parties to a mitzvah? Two. Two. And so to really reveal the absoluteness of Hashem would have to be that there's not even two parties. And the idea of Torah study is that this just makes sense. And a person studying Torah means that it makes sense. What makes sense? God's way of thinking makes sense. That's it. There is no idea that, that you are playing a distinct role from God. And so the ultimate revelation of God is going to be through Torah study. But that revelation of God is only available to to you within your soul, it doesn't actually affect the world. So you have this interesting tension. If you want to bring your soul closer to God, which is the greatest mitzvah of all time? Torah study. If you want to fulfill the purpose of the soul being in the world, what's the greatest mitzvah? Tzedakah. Tzedakah, right? And then if not tzedakah, then the physical mitzvah is not physical, at least mitzvahs that have a physical, tangible manifestation, which is at least articulating the words of Torah, etc. Okay? And this is why we find that we actually, when you cannot do both, both study Torah and do mitzvahs, what do you have to prioritize? The doing of mitzvahs. But the minute you can get the mitzvah done while still studying Torah, then you should study Torah, not do mitzvahs, right? So if um, the mitzvah will get done without you doing it, and, it, and then it's better to study Torah. But if it won't get done without you doing it, then it's better to forego the Torah because okay? to fulfill the purpose of the soul in the world, the focus is on the physical, more physical, the mitzvah, and tzedakah, the ultimate mitzvah. In purpose of the soul being as close to Hashem as possible, Torah study is the greatest mitzvah because it's, it's first off, more internal. It actually transforms the person, at least on the intellectual level, and it actually has the greatest unity is found in Torah more than in mitzvahs because there's no notion of duality of commander and what someone else being commanded. What if you're stuck between the two mitzvahs? There's halachas about it. Okay. The author was just giving the kind of 
spiritual metaphysical understanding behind those halachas. If you want to know the specific things. Okay, good. Now this creates a question because we have now just spent three chapters explaining that really all that matters is that you do mitzvahs, right? At any point did we discuss how you feel about the mitzvahs making a difference? Right? You do the mitzvah, right? You bring the shechina. You do a physical mitzvah, you bring the shechina into the way that actually really touches the physical world, right? You do all the mitzvahs, right? You elevate the world and bring the world into the state that God intended it to be all along, right? And granted, that's not the greatest unity your soul could possibly have with God. That's found through Torah study. But it fulfills the purpose of existence, purpose of creation. And even with Torah study, the main thing is that what you actually understand the Torah. At what point is how you feel about Torah mitzvahs matter here? It doesn't. And so we've kind of, in explaining, and remember, this is how we start chapter 30, uh, 35, in explaining the importance of focusing on the last saisei, the doing of the mitzvah, right? Which is what this is all about. And explaining how being a bainini is okay because you're still fulfilling the purpose of creation, right? We've kind of undermined the entire tanya. Because the entire tanya started out with questioning how it's possible to achieve the levavcha, the closeness to Hashem in your heart, as if that matters, right? And now the altar is explaining why, well, as long as it brings you to the mitzvah that's good enough, and even if you can't transform your emotions, as long as you're motivated to the mitzvah's proper is good enough, because the main thing is the doing of the mitzvahs, because doing the mitzvahs fulfills the purpose of creation, and it, when it comes to your soul, it's the study of Torah and understanding the Torah. Well, then you kind of went like, so, so then who needs, then I can just drop everything. As long as I'm doing mitzvahs, it doesn't really matter why I'm doing them, right? As long as I'm studying Torah and really understanding, it doesn't matter why I'm doing it. And so now what's going to happen in chapters 38, 39, and 40 is the altar reverses and starts to explain that this, the focus and emphasis on doing mitzvahs as both that which brings about the fulfillment of the purpose of creation of the world and that which unifies your soul with God depends nonetheless on how you feel about it. <laughs> that you can't simply say it's just enough to do mitzvahs. Okay, this, um, my own personal comment, is where many Lubavitchers like fail to understand Tanya. The message they take away is that the most important thing is to do the mitzvah. And then what they hear from that is the only thing that matters is the mitzvah. And therefore we can relate to our spiritual lives as completely irrelevant because as long as we're doing the mitzvah. And the Al-Tarebbe says, no, 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 no. That, that, don't take that conclusion. That, that, that's not the, that, it, it's a plausible conclusion if you ended Tanya chapter 37. Mm-hmm. So in chapter 38, the al says, okay, it's true that we now understand why halachically, from a perspective of Jewish law, how you feel about the mitzvahs as a general rule does not matter. Even your mental intention as a general rule doesn't matter. The question is, do you do it or do you not do it? But, this is how chapter 38, kind of the central theme of chapter 38 begins, doing a mitzvah without having the right motivation. And I'm using the word motivation here. The Hebrew word he uses is kavana. But in Tanya, it's very clear that he's understanding kavana to mean your motivation, not your, what you're thinking at the time you're doing it. Okay, so like if I'm eat, eating matzah and I'm thinking about how it's a mitzvah and how it strengthens my faith in Hashem, that's just a part of doing the mitzvah. I'm doing the mitzvah physically by eating the matzah and I'm maybe doing a mental act of thinking about its significance as well. But here what he means, kavana, he means the motivation, the psychological, how you feel about it. 
So doing a mitzvah without the proper motivation, without kavana, is like a body without a soul. Good? Now, the problem is, what is a body without a soul? Can someone give me a synonym for a body without a soul? Another way of saying body without soul? Dead. Is it dead? Corpse? Yeah. Is that, is that, is that a good thing? Now, if the altar were to say that a mitzvah without the right motivations is like a corpse, is like a dead body, that would kind of undermine everything we said, right? Mm-hmm. Which like, doesn't mean that. Okay. He doesn't mean a body who's missing its soul. He means a body without a soul. Because there are two kinds of bodies. There's bodies with souls and bodies without souls. So we need to define our terms. Bodies are physical and souls are psychological. That's how the terms are being used here in this chapter. When he says goof and neshama, neshama does not mean spiritual, does not mean, it means psychological. So, a rock is a body with or without a soul. Without. A tree is a body with or without a soul. Without. A dog. Well, let's ask ourselves a question. Do dogs desire things? Like, do they actually experience desire? Do they have sense perception? Do they, do they pursue aims because of how they feel about things? Do they have recollections? So do they have something, do they have a whole area of their being which is mental and psychological that's not merely physical? So there's our bodies with souls. People? Okay, so you can divide all the world into what's called daimim, inanimate objects. Sameach, plants, chai, animals, and medaber, people. But you can then draw a distinction in, more generally in saying inanimate objects and plants are bodies without souls. Meaning they only exist on one level of being, on the physical level. Whereas animals and human beings exist on another level, right? They, we, we exist physically, but we also exist psychologically, mentally. Now, which type of existence is better? which is a loftier, richer kind of existence. Bodies with souls or bodies without souls? Souls, souls right? It's, in other words, it is better to be an animal than to be a tree because an animal partakes of more of existence. It experiences things. Plants don't get to experience things. They're just there and grow. Okay? Now, when a person does a mitzvah, I'm, gonna, I, I'm also going to go slightly out of order so the ideas are a little bit clearer. Uh, by over, I'm going out of order because I'm oversimplifying. I just want to be clear about that. When a person does a mitzvah, if that mitzvah is lacking motivation of the love and fear of Hashem, then that mitzvah only exists on one level. But if a person is doing the mitzvah with love and fear, with avenir, then the mitzvah exists on a deeper level. Okay? That's going to be the basic idea. So any motivation or proper motivation? Proper, proper motivation. All proper motivation. Yes. As far as Alter was concerned, in chapter 38, it's the same. We'll move on. We get to, to, to um, 39 and 40. It gets a little more complicated. Okay, now more specifically, the way you understand it is like this. Is there more, let's say I put on tefillin with kavana and I put on tefillin without kavana. Where is there more shechina? Where is there more godliness? And the answer is, it's the same. 
Because remember, the godliness is, being, is coming about because it's a mitzvah, not because of me, right? So I can't say that if I put on tefillin out of habit or I put on tefillin with the greatest devotion to God, there's more godliness when I put it on without a great devotion to God. Okay. However, let's go back to plants, animals, people, rocks. Is a rock a holy thing? No. Is a dog a holy... Excuse me, is a dog. I don't avoid a dog. We'll talk about a cow. Is a, is a cow a holy thing? Is a cow holier, is a cow holier than a rock? Yes. No. No. <laughs> it's very simple. Is a cow klipa or kedusha? Just a cow on its own, wandering there in the, in the field. It's it, it is. It's klipa. It's the which kind of klipa? No, Fine. That's why I used the example. That's why I moved away from the dogs. I don't want to get into that nuance. But the rock is also klipa snoga, right? So in terms of the in terms of the dimension of holiness versus no holiness, they're both equally not holy. But still, the cow exists on a richer level. There's. His, 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 the cow's existence is a more developed, it's more expansive, right? So what you have to realize here is this notion of more than one dimension. There's the dimension of holiness and there's the dimension of what he calls his spashas achayas, the expansiveness of loving, of existing. A cow, in fact, let's take, a, let's take um, the animal soul of a Jew and their body. Is the animal soul of a Jew and their body in and of themselves any holier than a cow? No. no. But the human being, the Jews human being, they certainly experience a much richer and meaningful life than a cow, right? Mm-hmm. So again, one dimension is the depth and richness of your existence. The other dimension is holiness. Well, now let's move it to mitzvahs. I put on tefillin without thinking out of habit or I put on tefillin out of deep devotion to God. Is, there, is one of those more holy? There's more shechina than the other? No, they're equally holy in the most absolute sense. But that holiness can be a very like dull, kind of contracted point of holiness or it can be a very vibrant and expansive kind of holiness. So just like in the world of Klippa, where it's devoid of the Shekhin, devoid of godliness, you can have something as lowly as a rock and as lofty as a person in terms of the degree of richness and expansiveness of their quality of being. So too, when it comes to the Shekhinah, the Shekhinah can be on the level of a rock, just it's there. It can be like a plant, it's there and it's a little more rich and sophisticated. Or it can have this whole other dimension, this vibrancy. And that vibrancy comes to it because of the kavana. Now here's what's very important. Your kavana is not adding that vibrancy to the Shekhinah. Your kavana is creating this space for that vibrancy. Hashem wants the Shekhinah to be a vibrant Shekhinah. As they say in Yiddish, a lebedek Shekhinah, a living Shekhinah. But the, the Shekhinah can't come in if your mitzvah observance is purely technical. The Shekhinah comes in in a very technical way. In order for the Shekhinah to come in in a vibrant way, there needs to be the space for its vibrancy. Where is the space for its vibrancy? In your passion and your devotion. So rather than you imbuing the mitzvah with life, what you're actually doing is creating space for the mitzvah to express itself. And the idea, this is what it means when we say that, that through the love and fear of Hashem, the mitzvah elevates, it goes to a higher level. Okay? Now, the technical rules are like this. If you do a physical mitzvah, the shechina is on the level of an inanimate object. 
Okay? If you do a verbal or mental mitzvah, and I want to be clear, a verbal or mental mitzvah is defined um, as I once... A, ver- a verbal mitzvah means you're actually doing the act of speaking. Making mouth noises is not called speaking. Okay? Um, so, for instance, if you say a bracha, and you're, when you're saying the bracha, you're actually saying it as an act language, like you're saying something, not just making mouth noises, then your mitzvah is not on the level of a rock, it's on the level of a plant. The shechina is now a little bit more rich, a little more sophisticated. What? For a speech or a, men, a, spe- a mitzvah with speech or, or, or a mental mitzvah? Interesting question, what, what mitzvahs are, if there are any mitzvahs that are purely mental, but we'll leave that alone. So, when you give tzedakah, you brought the shechina into the world, but on what level? Mm-hmm. Like an animate object. The shechina is there, but it's, it's, it's not, it, there's no, it's vibrancy isn't coming out at all. When you make a bracha, and you mean what you say, like you meant a bracha, you know exactly what a bracha is, and you meant it, and what everything else. Then the shechina is there like a plant. It's a little more rich, it's a little more sophisticated. It's the same, it's not holier. It's equally holy, but it's just more rich and manifest and developed. But what happens if you do a mitzvah motivated by a love and a fear of Hashem that stems from your natural desire to be close to Hashem, right? The innate hidden love of Hashem we spoke about earlier in Tanya. If that's what's motivating you to do a mitzvah, then you've elevated the mitzvah to be like the level of the animal. The mitzvah, the shechina now has this whole nother rich place in order to express itself. That Hashem's presence is much more, it now has this, and then that's like a quantum leap, right? To go from a, an, a plant, which is just a physical object, to an animal, which is a, psych, a, a psychology to it, is a, is a quantum leap. A mitzvah motivated by the soul's natural love and fear of Hashem makes that same quantum leap. The shechina now is, much, is vibrant in a way that's just incomparable to the way it was be before. And what happens if you do a mitzvah motivated by a love and fear of Hashem that generates from actual comprehension of His greatness? Then your mitzvah is on the level of a human being. Then the shechina is fully manifest as much as possible, at least as far as chapter 38 is concerned. Okay? So now, when Hashem wants the Shechina to come into the world and the world to bring about the revelation of the Shechina in the greatest way possible, if you just do the mitzvah, you've got the Shechina here, but the Shechina is all like packed up inside itself and it's not, it's not having the room to really express the full vitality of the Shechina. And that only happens when you have the same, you, you're, you bring that, ener- that, that energy, that place where the Shechina can then, exp- you know, find uh, a place within you. Because ultimately when Hashem thinks of the mitzvah, bringing the shechina into the world, he thinks of the shechina in the most vibrant sense, not on the most technical level. So given this, it's not enough to just do the mitzvah. You have to do the mitzvah with the right feelings. Hence, all the things that we learned in Tanya up till now are in fact very relevant and important, right? Not because you want to experience closeness to God, but because the ultimate purpose of your soul being on earth depends on you doing mitzvahs with the right feelings. By the way, this was historically one of the controversies between chassidim and non-chassidim. Yeah, yes. The Zohar says quite clearly that, and we're going to talk between chapter 39 and 40. The Zohar says clearly that mitzvahs without love and fear do not ascend upward to God. You have to 
I ended 38, and I'm, before, I'm about to start 39. Mitzvahs without, without love and fear do not ascend upwards. Which basically means you could be doing mitzvahs at the greatest possible level, but if your, your heart is not in the right place, there's something invalid about all of your mitzvahs. And this was something that the, the Mesnagdim deeply opposed in the Hasidic movement. Um, it, it, was a, it was a major, major controversy. Um, some took the Hasidic movement to meaning that, therefore the value in the mitzvah is how you feel about it. Okay, that's clearly not the approach the Alter is taking. Okay, now... We'll start, um, yeah. Um, is any, are non even able to do this on the human level? Yeah, yeah. We're going to get to it. Non, we're going we're gonna, to we, move to 39 and we'll see what we can't do. Okay. So now, um, this helps us. Um, now, now, chapter 39 is going to take this theme that we discussed in chapter 38 and really develop it. And to do this, we need to understand something very... And again, I'm going to go slightly actually majorly out of order um, just to get the the core ideas clear. Okay. There are this is going to be very technical. In fact, to I think the easier thing for me to do is actually use the board so we don't get confused. Okay. Okay, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to not even go to order. I'm just going like, to put a map and a chart. It's like, I think that's easier than going to the order. Okay, we have... We've learned about the four worlds. We've encountered the four worlds before. I mentioned them, right? Yeah. Okay. So the four worlds... I can use Hebrew or no? Yes. Everyone's okay with me using Hebrew? Yes. Okay. So we have Atsilos. Each world is divided into what are called the spheres and the Hechalos. Okay? The spheres and the Hechalos, how should we think about that? Think about it like this. There's you, there's the world. You are in the world, but the world is not you, right? The spheres are, so to speak, the Hashem's manifestation in that world, and the Hechalos is the rest of the world Okay, so you are in the world, right? You are not the world, you're not this room, you're not outside, right? Okay, so there's actually here again two dimensions. There's which world we're on and whether we're talking about the spheres or we're talking about the hechalos. Okay, here's the rule, okay? 
each world is characterized by a certain revelation of Hashem. Atsilus is going to be characterized by something called Merkava. I'll come back to what that is. This is going to be characterized by something called Seichel, and this is going to be characterized by something called Midas. And this the Altar doesn't talk about in Tanya, so I'm just not going to talk about it because we're trying to overview Tanya. There is some discussion from Chassidim about how the Altar, what the Altar saying relates to this, we're going to ignore it. Okay. Midas means the emotions, right? But if you have midas and no seichel, then it means your midas are natural. So for instance, um, if someone makes you feel good, you are probably going to how feel how about them? Like it. Like them. If someone is your parent, you will feel a strong attachment to them, right? These are all natural midas. Right? Seichel requires you to actually go out of yourself and understand things beyond yourself, okay? Seichel we spoke about can produce midas, right? So the natural love of Hashem would would fit which world? Midas. The world of Midas, the world of Yitzira. Okay. And what kind of creatures are completely governed by their natural emotions? Yeah. Animals. Animals. Okay. So the world of Midas is also the world of Chai. Chai is the Hebrew word for animals, right? Um, also, the angels are generally speaking the same thing. So the angels in general live in which world? In this world, okay? Now, if you're producing your love and fear of Hashem because of your understanding of His greatness, Seichel, right, what kinds of beings are capable of using their intellect to create new feelings? Mm-hmm. Humans, right? So this is the world of? Medaber. Okay? And souls, in the truest sense of what a soul is capable of, Long in this world. Okay, what's a Merkava? Chariot. Merkava is a chariot. Okay? So here's the thing. If I do something because I like it, if I do something because it makes sense to me, so much so that I actually become passionate about it, it's on a higher level. What if I do something because I'm completely just submissive to the truth? The truth has taken me over the way the rider takes over the, the horse. That's something I've transcended, say, I've transcended human reasoning. So this is below human. Midas are below the human. Seichel is the level of the human. And what is Merkava? Transcending. Transcending of human. Okay. How do you become a Merkava? The altar is saying, that's not our business. Okay. Want to know what you cannot achieve as a Bainani? That. Those, this is the level of complete Sadiqa. Totally beyond us. Is the level of the patriarchs, of Moshe Rabbein, people like totally beyond what, you know, Rabbi Shimbarifai. Okay, so here's the rule. When you do a mitzvah, okay, when you do a mitzvah and your mitzvah is motivated by natural love, where does your, where does your mitzvah go? What level of Shekhinah do you bring your mitzvah to? It's here, right? So this is where you have um, natural. I spell natural. N a t u r a l. U. R a l. Natural. Nature. 
If you have natural love and fear, then your mitzvahs go here. What if you do mitzvahs motivated by intellectual love and fear? So if you contemplate how great God is to the point that it makes you passionate about doing mitzvahs and afraid of sinning, then your mitzvahs are over here. But if you're just getting in touch with your soul's innate desire to be close to God, not separate from Hashem, and that's what's motivating your Torah mitzvahs, then your Torah mitzvahs are here. So which means you're kind of like doing mitzvahs in an animalistic way, and some people are doing mitzvahs in a human way, right? What if you are, I spelled this wrong, intellect. Yes. <laughs> now. How do you spell intellect? T-E-L-L-E-C. 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 Okay. What about here? None of our business. <laughs> Okay? How you get your mitzvahs up there, not our concern. I was like, very clear, just don't worry about that. Okay, but here's the thing. Where does your soul go after you die? So if you are a Benani, your soul goes here. Why would your soul go here if you're a Benani? Because what is the Bainani? Here's the thing. This is where your soul goes because that's where your soul kind of lives. That's its natural place. If you're a Bainani, what's really keeping you in check as a Bainani? What's holding the Bainani as a Bainani? Action. No. The godly soul? What about the godly soul? It's ruling. Well, how? It's dominance over the What gives it its dominance? That the person makes sure never to lose touch with what? What keeps the person from slipping into Russia, no matter how difficult it might be, is the innate, natural love and fear of Hashem. Now, could a Bainini achieve these things? But those are achievements. Where is it kind of... Right? When the Bainini is at the, doing things at the peak, at the pinnacle, yeah, it can achieve intellectual love and fear. But the Bainini doesn't... That's not the Bainini's like baseline. The baseline is that no matter what, always maintain a sense that deep down, the most important thing to me is Hashem. That's your natural love and fear. So where does the Bainini live? So, right? So now when the Bainini therefore dies, the soul goes and hangs out in the world of? Mitzvah. Where is his mitzvahs? Bria. Some of them are here, but some of them might be. Okay? Um, where does the tzaddik live? Bria. Tzaddik lives in Bria. What about a tzaddik gomor? Complete tzaddik. Okay, now here's the rule. If you are in one of these, and now, so we're in the same world, can I see you? So if you are hanging out here, you get to see over here. So there's an idea that we've mentioned before that in Ganadin you experience the Ziv HaShchina, the radiance of the Shchina. Where does that Shchina come from? You are mitzvahs. 
How radiant is the Shekhinah? What does it depend on? On your mitzvahs. Not on your mitzvahs. The Shekhinah depends on your mitzvahs. How radiant the Shekhinah is depends on? Motivation. The motivation. This, motiv- this Shekhinah is less radiant than? Than And this Shekhinah is less radiant than? But do you get to experience the radiance of this world if you're hanging out in this world? Yes. No. You get to only experience <laughs> the radiance. <laughs> so this person can see this radiance, and this person gets to see this radiance, this person gets to see that radiance. So why would you try to attain a higher level of motivation? So the altar of says, just because you live here doesn't mean you can't visit. Oh. Oh. So we speak about souls having an elevation, say, on Shabbos. Oh, they so get to go visit higher worlds. So that's what this is talking about? That's right. So if... So... This is just uh, to flesh out like how important your feeling of the mitzvah matters, right? How radiant is your mitzvah? That depends on why you did it, right? And this is beyond us, right? Moreover, moreover, which world you live in depends on kind of the thing that kept you grounded in your relationship with Hashem. Is it your natural love? You live here. If it's the intellectual love, you're here. If it's something beyond all that, the Merkava level, which is not our concern, then you live over there. Now, can you visit higher places? You can, not to get into the technicalities. Why? So, for instance, if you do mitzvahs, if you're a bain, most of your mitzvahs are here. Some of them are here. You hang out over here after you die, and occasionally you get to go over here. But what does this whole chart depend on? Not whether you did the mitzvah, but the kavana. The kavana, and by kavana here we mean the motivation. The motivation, how you actually felt. What does this show us? How incredibly powerful, how we feel feel about the mitzvahs. Even though, are these mitzvahs any holier than these mitzvahs? No. No. Okay? Why is it under spheres? Because that's what spheres are. Spheres are the part of the world where Hashem, so to speak, resides, and the heichel is what's outside of that. So the equivalent of sphere would be like your body. The part of body is the part of the world that you are within, and then the rest of the world is something that is beyond you. Okay. There's obviously a lot more technicalities, but so does it matter how you feel about the mitzvah? Absolutely. Good. Why isn't a siyah in Hanukkah? Siyah in Hanukkah. Why isn't a siyah in Hanukkah? Because really the altar is interested in talking about love and fear. Mm. And I mean, there's nothing, a siyah, whatever it is, it's lower than love and fear, right? That's the simple reason. Um, I, I will tell you if you want, could this be that nice to leave the chart blank? So I, I will put it in here, okay. The, the, there was a famous chassid named Shmuel Greinim. Shmuel Greinim was one of the first mishpim in Tam Chetimim in Lubavitch Yeshiva. He was a chassid of the Rebbe Marash and a chassid of the Rebbe Shabbat, the fifth Chabad Rebbe. And he proposed the Rebbe Rishab the following idea, which is that if you do mitzvahs um, out of just what he calls, what is called Kabbalah soul, or submission to God, How are you supposed to submission? S-U-F-I-S-S-S-O-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-
of Hashem's authority. The world of Asiya. And this person, um, how would you call this person? This person is, the best way to put it is not a Russia. In other words, they're technically a Bainani, but they're not really the full spirit of the Bainani. You see what I'm saying? Is this submission to God meaning that like a constant state of existence? Like, why did you do a mitzvah? Just because. Just because God said so. And like, how I feel about it doesn't matter. God said so is good enough for a reason to do something. And what if it's going to cost me a lot of money? No. Then you still do it. What if it's going to make me a pub- what's going to publicly humiliate me? What if it's like really, really, really inconvenient? What if it's going to destroy my marriage? But that's really God's will. So if you're going to do, if that's why you're doing mitzvahs, then you're here. Right? But you don't really have any personal investment. You're just completely submissive to God. You've surrendered yourself to God. It's, in a certain sense, it's the lowest level. And in a weird sense, there's actually something very similar to that to the highest level. A topic in Hasidus, but again, the Tanya is really just focused on these two levels because the Tanya is trying to focus on how we develop our emotional relationship with Hashem, which kind of presupposes a basic level of submission to God, and then there's stuff that's totally beyond that, beyond our reach. Okay? Now, chapter 40. Okay. Chapter 40 is where the altar concludes this theme. Um, and the... The Alter Rebbe says that, um, and again, I'm going to oversimplify the ideas and not go in order because there are a lot of complications and things here. The Alter Rebbe says like this, that um, some of this is actually the end of 39, but I'll, I'll, I'll mix it together. It's a little bit easier this way. The Alter Rebbe says like this, how you feel about the mitzvah is like the wings. That's what he says based on the Zohar. And the rule with the wings in the laws of kosher animals, is that if you remove an, a, if you damage a, a vital part of the animal, the animal is no longer kosher. So if the wings of a bird are damaged, or even removed completely, the bird is still kosher, because the wings are not considered to be vital. And so the Altarab understands from this is that if you do a mitzvah, you can always add in the motivation later on. Okay? Because the motivation is something that makes the mitzvah and it brings the mitzvah to its full sense, but the core of the mitzvah is there even without the motivation. Okay? Now, this leads to some very important ramifications, which I'm going to start with, which is not necessarily the first one, but I think is, is, is a good one to start with. Love and fear are not actually mitzvahs in and of themselves. The author concludes from this is that lo- when you love Hashem, it is only a mitzvah in as much as it motivates you to do other mitzvahs. Fear of Hashem is only a mitzvah in as much as it motivates you to not sin. Right? In other words, if you develop strong feelings of love towards Hashem, are you fulfilling a mitzvah? No. No. And in fact, you could, Sadiqim feel feelings of love which actually transcend mitzvahs, right? Feelings of love that are, that are like being beyond this world. That, that's very nice. It, it doesn't, it's not a mitzvah. The mitzvah of loving Hashem is the love which is the wing to the other mitzvahs. The mitzvah of fear of Hashem is the, 
is the feelings, which is the wing to the mitzvahs. Okay? The, that to be a mitzvah in its own right is all the other mitzvahs, and the love and fear are like wings. So the mitzvah is a mitzvah without them, and they themselves are not mitzvahs in their own right. So if you do a mitzvah out of love and fear, how many mitzvahs are you doing? One. You do a mitzvah out of love and fear. You're motivated by love of Hashem and fear of Hashem. How many mitzvahs are you doing? You light Shabbos candle because you want to be close to Hashem, and you're, and you're also lighting Shabbos candles because you don't want to anger Hashem, because it's really important to you to meet Hashem. And, so you're doing three mitzvahs, Shabbos candles, love, and fear. But if you feel a tremendous desire to be close to Hashem, and are very afraid that Hashem shouldn't reject you, but you're not actually lighting the Shabbos candle, how many mitzvahs are you doing? Zero. Zero. Because the love and fear are just the wings of the mitzvah. Now, it also means you can add them in later. So the rule is like this. The love and fear only count when you develop them yourself. Okay? So if you have just become trained by your parents to like fear God and do what he says, that doesn't count. You have to actually cultivate within yourself these feelings of love and fear, either the natural kind or the intellectual kind. When you do that, the mitzvah then gets elevated to the appropriate world. If you don't do that, then what happens? The mitzvah never actually enters the realm of the spheres. Remember how I put, put the realm of the spheres there? It just, it kind of stays outside. It's like, it never, it, 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 the, 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 the godliness of the mitzvah never shines, in other words. How do you get the godliness of that mitzvah to shine? When you go back and do that same mitzvah again, or you go back and learn that same section of Torah again with the motivation, that motivation will not just illuminate the mitzvah you're currently doing, but that mitzvah that you did in the past, right? So, retroactively. Retroactively. So, which is like this. Let's say you are davening. And it's hard to really, really mean and really be emotionally invested in the entire davening, especially if you're going to daven the whole shachras. What could you do? You could say all the words of davening properly and say, today I'm only going to really try and put myself into this bracha and tomorrow the next bracha. And then throughout the course of the year, the altar actually mentions the years of the cycle to do it in, you end up being emotionally invested in every part of davening. Mm -hmm. Then what happens? It's as if you were... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay? If you studied Torah and you weren't doing it because you wanted to be closer to Hashem, that Torah does not... That Torah doesn't shine. What do you need to do? Learn that same part of Torah again with the right motivations. And then the Torah you're learning now and that piece of Torah that you learned in the past is the same part of Torah. It's very practical. Okay. But what's the problem? What if you never come back to it? There's two problems. What if you never come back to that part? The Shekhin is there but never shines. And if you never did the mitzvah properly to begin with, there's nothing to go back and fix. Now, the other possibility is that you do mitzvahs for the wrong motivation. What's the wrong motivation? Self-interest. Anything other than the service of God. So you're studying Torah because you're interested in what it says. You're, intellectual, you're an intellectual. Right? Or you want people to give you a lot of respect. Right? Or you want a God to reward you. Or whatever the case might be. You have some conscious drive, some real motivation to do the mitzvah. It's not just 
It's not just habit. It's not just like the normal thing. You're, you're, you're driven to do the mitzvah, but, but, it's, but it's not about love and fear of Hashem. Then what happens? Well, because it's about yourself and yourself, we spoke about before is Klippa. What have you done to the mitzvah? You brought the mitzvah into exile. You, brought, you put the mitzvah in Klippa. So it turns out like this. When you study Torah and do mitzvahs for the wrong reasons, you are bringing the Shechina into exile. Another thing that was very controversial that the Hasidic movement made a big deal about. So you could have a, a, a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar who's like the greatest Torah scholar in the city, the greatest Torah scholar in the region, right? And from the point of view, and again, these are all based on things it says in the Zohar and the Arizal. These are not innovative ideas. Alter was just putting them in the formulation for the, to understand this as a guide to life. But he's not the innovator of these ideas. You could have the greatest Talmud Chacham in the city or in the region and arguably, what is he doing through his Torah study? He's dragging the divine presence yeah. down into, into exile, into, 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 into the klipa. And what's the only way to fix that problem? Tshuva. But here's the cool thing. The moment he does tshuva, what happens? It all, it, right, the tshuva itself. So if you learn Torah or do mitzvahs for the wrong reasons... Do you have to go back and do it again in order for that shechina to now shine? No, just do tshuva. And now here's the cool thing about tshuva. Every Jew for sure, for sure is guaranteed to do tshuva. So if I were to ask you, what is better to do Torah mitzvahs for the wrong reasons or do Torah mitzvahs like just stam for no particular reason, just out of habit, out of custom, out of norm? Which is worse? Which is better? Which is better? Which is worse? What? It's better to do out of custom. So it depends. At the moment, it's better to do out of custom because you haven't brought the Shekhinah into... Exile. Exile. But the thing is, the Shekhinah there is... It's not shining at all. And the only way to make it shine is... To do that very same mitzvah again with the right motivations, which is not necessarily something you're going to do, right? Shiva won't fix that. No. But if you do it for the wrong reasons... It's currently worse because the Shechina is in exile. But when you do tshuva, that Shechina will shine. And you are, every Jew is guaranteed at, at some point in the future to for sure do. So what is better? To do mitzvahs for the wrong reasons or to do mitzvahs for just like out of habit or custom? It depends if you're thinking in the short term or you're thinking in. Which is why our sages say it's always better to do mitzvahs for the wrong reasons and ultimately come to the right reasons. Not just as opposed to doing this well. There's actually, and this is, the, the yes, it's very important to have the right motivations, but like having the wrong motivations is a problem. But in a certain sense, it's such a problem that it almost creates its own solution. Whereas when you do something just out of habit or out of custom, the problem is less of a problem, but that problem could stay forever. So, you know. It's not necessarily so clear that just doing mitzvahs out of habit is better. In one sense, yes. In one sense, no. Ultimately, mitzvahs need to be done with the proper motivation of love and fear of Hashem. Is this, can this just be a vicious cycle? Like you could 
but you know, finally do it for the right reason, and then the next time you do the mitzvah, do it for the wrong reasons, or is it like welcome, welcome to the world of regular people? Okay. <laughs> that's that's kind of how most people who take their religious life seriously. That's kind of what happens, right? They they get the wrong motivations take hold, and certainly, and at some point, hopefully, and especially if they learn chassidus and they take chassidus seriously, it starts to bother them, and they they return to Hashem, and they want to connect to Hashem authentically and really, and you know, and, and, and that elevates it, and then they fall back down again, and yeah. But in the long term, you're, you're, you're... See, the thing is, the less you focus on your spiritual perfection and you understand the role that your feelings are playing, the, the chaos is, becomes somewhat kind of manageable. Mm-hmm. Right? You just can't be complacent about it. It's like, okay, yeah. Which is one of the reasons why, like, Hasidim tradition doesn't have a problem of people doing things for the wrong reasons as long as it wouldn't become ideological. Like the real issue that Hasidim traditionally had with, with, with people who are doing it for the wrong reasons is that when they make the wrong reasons into the ideology, into the, the, the what's called the shita, the hashkafa, the, the mind, like, like really, like I'm going to educate you to do mitzvahs for these ulterior motives. And that, that becomes what Judaism is all about. Like that's where they're from. But like the fact that like our animal soul finds all sorts of ulterior reasons to do mitzvahs. Okay, sometimes we're not at our spiritual best. And if those ulterior reasons are getting us to do mitzvahs, in the end, we'll, we'll, in the end, the klipo itself will be more than we can bear, and we'll do tshuva, and we'll come back to God, and those mitzvahs will be. Whereas if you're just doing them out of habit and out of custom, and you're not really, you're not in, you're not engaged at all, like you have to actively go back and fix that, and you may not. Of course, the worst thing is just not to do the mitzvah. Why? Because if you missed the mitzvah, you didn't do the mitzvah. And by doing the mitzvah, I mean doing it properly according to Allah. If you did the mitzvah and it didn't count according to Allah, that's the same thing as not doing it. And there's nothing, there's no, there's tshuva, nothing, no helping that. Okay? So it's more sophisticated than, oh, all that matters is you do the mitzvah. The most important element is doing the mitzvah, but it is only complete when the mitzvah is being done with the right motivations. And if it's done with lacking that or with the wrong motivations, those are correctable problems. And again, they're different ways. How come every Jew is guaranteed to do tshuva? Because on a very simple level, tshuva is returning back to your essence and nothing can be, dis- nothing can be alienated from itself permanently. In other words... Um, it's the, the idea is like if you, you throw something up, it eventually comes back down. It doesn't matter how hard you throw it. I realize that in physics, it's not exactly true. There's something called escape velocity, but we'll ignore that. I mean, like in regular human experience. That when a Jew is not relating to Hashem properly, there's, there's a deep self-alienation taking place. That, that, that cannot be apt. That can't be permanent. You know, whether it's in this lifetime, or it's supposed to come back and be true. That's a discussion. But like, in the end, true will be done. Because... You can't, you can't avoid yourself forever. Most of us do tshuva several times a day, actually. We're just bad at like, having it stick, which is a topic for a different, different class. Okay. Tomorrow we have to do chapters 41 through 53. That's how many chapters? 13 chapters. Okay. Um, 41 through 50 is going to be a whole menu of different types of love and fear of Hashem and how they relate and interact in this idea of service of Hashem. Um, And then chapters 51 through 53 is going to revisit the idea of physical mitzvahs bringing the Shekhin into the world. Mm
Um, I'm going to tell you right now, 51 through 53, I'm going to probably just oversimplify tremendously. Those are arguably the hardest chapters of Tanya. They're the most philosophical and abstract and the most Kabbalistic language that's very technical. Um, and I will try to get kind of like the core question and the core answer there. And I'm going to spend most of tomorrow's class going over 50, 41 through 50, which is, I think, much more relatable and understandable.